All right, let me invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 this morning. It's a profound privilege to be able to open up the Word of God with you and work through uh, the last portion of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Um, it's been a joy and a first for me to be able to uh, open up uh, God's Word in a local church setting and work verse by verse through uh, this major section in the book of 1 Corinthians, this section on spiritual gifts. It goes from 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. I was doing the math this morning. I think that we have engaged in 14, soon to be 15 sermons working through this passage. And uh, it has been, uh, I, I think, especially helpful to me. I, th- I pray and trust it's been helpful to the local church here as well, to Colonial, as we consider spiritual gifts in the, the local gathering. Um, this is a, a very important topic, of course, and in our country, especially in our region here, there are a lot of questions about spiritual gifts. Uh, so what we're going to do this morning, I would like to uh, just spend a short amount of time reviewing some of the major highlights, as I see it, from 12 through 14 for you, just a few minutes. And then I want to cover the last uh, five verses that we have yet to cover. And then I kind of want to situate us within the rest of Christianity on some of the things I've been saying, because we've just taken our time to work through the text, and I think that after we do that, then we can, we can, we can look around and see uh, where we fit as a local congregation. And so uh, that's my plan with you uh, this morning. So first of all, as a means of review, I look in your Bible at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Near the beginning of this in 12.1, you see Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts. Remember that uh, the, the, the words now concerning are a marker and that when Paul uses them, he is uh, calling to mind certain questions that the Corinthians had asked Paul. They wrote Paul a letter full of questions and statements about different topics, and every time you see now concerning, he brings up another topic. The Corinthian believers in the house churches in Corinth had asked Paul questions about spiritual gifts. I think they especially asked Paul something like, do certain flashy gifts demonstrated in the local assembly, do certain gifts Uh, designate those who would be most spiritual among us? In other words, are you more godly if you manifest certain gifts in the assembly? Seems as if some in Corinth were claiming that perhaps because they used the gift of tongues, they were more spiritual. Paul's answer is found in 12.3. You want to talk about those who are spiritual, those who are of the spirit proclaim, he says, that Jesus is Lord. In other words, what Paul's saying very early on here is all genuine believers are spiritual people. And this would fly in the face of someone who is claiming to be more special than another believer because of their gifts. Beyond that, Paul brings up a lot of different groups of three, if you remember in chapters 13 and 14. In chapter 13, he brings up a group of three gifts, three miraculous gifts that were soon to stop. Gifts of prophecy, which would be new divine revelation from God to a person in their own language, so they can understand it. The gift of tongues, which would be the same thing, only in a, in a foreign language that the speaker didn't know. And the gift of knowledge, which would be new divine insight into a person's life or the congregation's life. Paul says these three gifts will soon cease and will, will pass away. If you look in your Bibles at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 7 and 8, you can see that there. Those gifts will cease, they will pass away. 
Instead, the Corinthians are supposed to put their attention on three other works of the Spirit, another group of three, faith, hope, and love. The end of 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, you can see, now abideth faith, hope, and love. But even among those three works of the Spirit that should be preferred because they last longer than gifts like tongues, knowledge, and prophecy, Paul says there's one. There's a more excellent way. There's one thing you should really focus on, and that is love, because love endures forever. Love goes into heaven and endures forever. After laying out this most excellent way, Paul returns to the Corinthians' questions in chapter 14. You look at chapter 14. I think he gets right back to specific questions they were asking about tongues and prophecy, and he gives another group of three. Three guiding values that will help this assembly as they uh, try to figure out exactly how they should worship together when they gather together. And the three guiding values are edification, building others up in the body. The second one would be mutual understanding or intelligibility. When you gather together, people need to understand what you're saying, whether that's a lost person or a visitor or a member. No one will be edified or built up unless they can understand what you're doing. So don't behave and function in ways that people can't understand. And then the third guiding value was order. And two weeks ago, I I worked through that on a Sunday morning and a Sunday night with you. And I, I drew your attention to three commands. You remember there were three commands to be silent. There's another group of three I didn't even think about, right? It's like uh, good preaching outlines. They always have three points. Okay, three commands to be silent. It's repeated three times. If someone is speaking in tongues in an unruly fashion, Paul says you need to be silent. Or if someone is not uh, exercising the gift of prophecy in the right way and, and they're doing it to attract uh, attention or so on, you need to be silent. And then last, or I guess two Sunday nights ago, we talked about unruly women in the congregation. Remember we talked about the silence of women? Remember any of this? I can start through the whole 14 series again, you know, sermon series again if we need to. Uh, Actually, I think we had about a record attendance that Sunday night as we talked about the silence of women. I haven't received a lot of hate mail. No, I did plan it so I'd be in Boston and Providence, Rhode Island right afterwards, but um, we talked about the silence of women and uh, we saw that there's, you know, there was something going on in Corinth with unruly women in the congregation. Perhaps these women were speaking in tongues when they're not supposed to be, or better yet, what I presented to you, is that some of the women were acting as weighers or evaluators of the prophecies of their men, of their husbands or their fathers. They were sitting in a position of authority in the local assembly, and and their husband or father would get up and say a word of prophecy, and uh, a woman would question the validity of it in front of everyone. And so Paul says, instead of that, women, you need to be in submission, as the law says. You need to be silent. And if you have any questions, inquiries about that prophetic utterance, you need to ask your man at home in private. So in other words, you can kindly question the veracity of what your husband's saying, but only in private at home. Having said all of that, we come to the last four or five verses, five verses here, and Paul's final challenge to them regarding worship at the end of chapter 14. Look in your Bible at verse 36. He says, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that it has reached? If anyone thinks that he's prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. 
So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but let all things be done decently and in order. In this final challenge, a very brief challenge, Paul's instruction goes in three directions. First of all, in verse 36, he questions the Corinthian believers about exclusive privilege. He has two questions in verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones that it has reached? And both of these questions have to do, have to do with exclusive privilege. Paul asked whether God's word started in the city of Corinth. Did it start where you are? Or, he asked, has it only reached Corinth? This is true of you. I think when Paul asks these two questions, this is another way of him asking why the Corinthians feel above coming in line with the way that the gospel has worked in all the other cities and communities throughout the known world at that time. Throughout all Judea, Galatia, Asia Minor, Macedonia, and Greece. I mean, what makes you so special that you can have worship that is unlike anyone else we've ministered to. Perhaps you know someone at work who believes that rules and policies are meant for every other worker at the job than themselves. He or she may have worked there for quite some time, and they feel, so they feel a sense of entitlement. And so when things like, you know, even the boss tries to bring them in line, somehow they forget that they are the employee instead of the employer. I remember one particular uh, situation when I was a young man going through Bible college. In summers, I would work for a moving company. And I remember one situation that was particular, particularly striking. There was a woman who worked there who routinely got away with exploding in anger at other workers and at the boss. And it made us all extremely uncomfortable. But she got away with this until a new boss came. She was fine for a while. She brought herself under control for a certain amount of time, but one day she lost it on the new boss, and he quickly reminded her of her position. You ever had a situation like this? Someone thinks that all the rules, all the things are for other people? In this text, Paul asks the Corinthians why they feel above the rules of normal order in corporate gatherings, and he does so by asking questions. He's patient with them, but this time these questions are designed to confront them. Did the word of God only come from you, or has it only reached you? But then next, in verses 37 and 38, Paul describes or gives the marks of spiritual people. He had done this in chapter 12 and verse 3, and I just reviewed that for you. The mark of a spiritual person is one who says that Jesus is Lord. But in verses 37 and 38, you have two if statements there, starting both verses. He gives two other descriptions of people who claim to be spiritual. Look in your Bible at verse 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command from the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized by relieving her of it. So the first mark of a spiritual person is that a spiritual person person acknowledges the Lord's commands in verse 37. You see, see, Paul says, any true prophet or spiritual person will acknowledge that what I have been writing to you, the things 
that I have been writing to you are a commandment from the Lord. The word acknowledge could, could also be translated, they will recognize this. And they will recognize the things. Uh, Paul is speaking in plurals here. This, these are at least the things he's been writing about in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 all along the way. Not just the silence of women thing, which was the last thing he wrote. But all throughout chapter 14, perhaps all throughout chapters 12 through 14, Paul says a mark of a spiritual person is they will recognize that the things plural I've been writing to you are, and what does he say? Commandments. From whom? The Lord. They're Jesus's commandments. Now, there are a few ways that someone might understand this. I think some perhaps might claim that Paul's overreaching, that he's pressing to make the Corinthians come in line submit to his own views, or, much better, Paul understands the nature of his own apostolic authority as a messenger of Christ. And he understands that his written commandments that that he has given in this text are actually things which come from Jesus. And so what Paul says here is what he has given them must regulate there be, I think what Paul is saying here is that is, is really a strong-armed claim. Paul is claiming that what he's written to them in these chapters are actually a command from the risen Lord Jesus. Now, men and women, we live in a time when people are rejected. We live in a culture, in a world in which we question any time someone requires us to do something or forbids us from doing something. So unfortunately, the time and age in which we live, we we live in the midst of a culture where we are basically deconstructionists. We're skeptical, right, about any authority as it being just a claim for some sort of power. So we begin to dismantle authorities by asking questions like, "Who, who is he or who is she? I mean, What makes him so special? I mean, he is just a a human being after all. I mean, why should I submit to another human being like this? We question authority. You see this in our culture. see this in Christianity as well. And we we like to surround ourselves with those who agree with us. People are good at being skeptical or negative regarding authority. Yet the Bible speaks clearly about certain authorities being placed in our life. For instance, Ephesians 6.1 is still in the Bible. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Okay. And yes, there are times when parents are, are uh, not necessarily, your parents aren't perfect, right? They're not going to walk in perfect obedience to the Lord, but the challenge, the command remains. Now, if a parent Uh, requires you to do something that is against the text of Scripture, then we follow the Scripture. But but this uh, command is in the Bible. Parents are an authority for us as children. Same is true of pastors. Pastors are divinely ordained authority in matters of spiritual things. I think of Hebrews 13 and verse 17. You know that verse? Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders 
and submit to them. What leaders are we to obey and to submit to? He says, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I think he's describing pastors in the assembly there. And as the author of Hebrews is addressing his Jewish professing believers, he says, you need to obey them and you need to submit to them. Yes, there are times when pastors perhaps overreach or overextend their authority, but in matters of spirit, in spiritual matters, if a pastor, a group of pastors from this assembly would come to you and say, we're concerned about decisions you're making in, in your life that don't seem to mesh with the scriptures, you have a responsibility to obey your leaders and submit to them. And uh, just, just in case you think, uh, I, would remind, I would remind each one of you that every one of the pastors is responsible to submit to and, and to obey their leaders as well, the other pastors. So if my pastors come to me and say, your, your life is out of line with the scripture. And really, any believer comes to me and says that. I have, an, I, I have the responsibility. Ephesians 6, 5 talks about the authority of employers in our lives. We won't turn there. Romans 13, 1. Listen to Romans 13, 1 about government. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For... There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So we need to be very careful with, with how we respond to governmental authorities, no matter who our president is, no matter who it is, because he's been instituted by God in that position. Responsibility to obey our parents or pastors or employers or government, ultimately we have responsibility to obey and to submit to God. I think it's the, the oldest sin in the Bible, right? To question an authority. Satan says, hath God said? And then he says later to Eve and Adam, you will not surely die. So Paul's point here in this text that we've been looking at is if some of the spiritual Corinthians do not allow his letter to regulate their worship, then they are not obeying the commands of Jesus. It's a very strong claim by the Apostle Paul. Spiritual people recognize and obey the commandments of the Lord. And then verse 38, spiritual people know the value of Paul's instruction. Look again in your Bible at verse 38. 1 Corinthians 14, 38. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. I think this is a significant verse for the Apostle Paul as well. This is a significant statement, which I think the ESV maybe doesn't even do a great job of emphasizing the way it should. The word recognize here is a powerful word that is often used in the New Testament of unbelievers who do not know something or are completely ignorant of something. So in verse 38, then, Paul says that if someone does not know that Paul's letters portray commands from the Lord that they themselves are not even known. He uses the same verb twice here as translated recognize, and, and he just changes it from present or uh, from active to passive. And the point that he is stressing here is retribution. If they themselves don't know this, then they are not known. It's a direct retribution, but I want to suggest to you that it's even more than that. It is a divine retribution. 
For in that last statement that you you read, they themselves are not recognized or known, I think that Paul might be implying that God does not recognize or know them. And that is a significant consequence. Spiritual people acknowledge or recognize what Paul has to say about worship in these texts. And so if you, if you ever run across a believer that says something like, I don't care what 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 says about worship, that's not how I know it or experience. Just know that that person is not a spiritual person. As we continue to move throughout here, though, we get to verses 39 and 40, and Paul closes with some concluding commands. He gives three of them. I think we can go quickly through them. After challenging them with questions and the marks of of genuine spiritual people, Paul closes out with three commands. The first two commands have to do with the problems that he's facing in Corinth. First, he says in verse 39a, so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. So the first command is desire to prophesy. And again, this this is a strong Strong uh, challenge to the Corinthians. This actually is repeating the way the chapter began. If you look at chapter 14 and and, and verse 1, you can say he said much the same thing. Uh, I'm reading here from the NIV. He says, follow love and earnestly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. And uh, Paul has given throughout chapter 14 many different reasons why the Corinthians should earnestly desire to prophesy. Because it builds, because it strengthens others in the assembly, gives them revelation from God which can help them. So the first command is earnestly desire to prophesy. Then the next command in verse 39 is one that uh, we need to take a little time looking at. He says, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. In these two commands, Paul's preference for prophecy still comes out. He states prophecy positively, earnestly desire that. But here in a negative command, he says, uh, and don't forbid, don't, don't totally ban people from speaking in tongues. Now, I think we must remember at this point in verse 39 that Paul is dealing with gifts that were still in existence in the first century. I mean, he has told them in chapter 13 that these two gifts uh, themselves will one day cease and will pass away. But at the time that Paul is writing these statements, these are still legitimately legitimate gifts. He can't say, you know, quit speaking in tongues because it's still a gift of the Spirit that was functioning in the first century. So Paul commands the Corinthians not to totally forbid speaking in tongues. It was still operative, and no Corinthian should ban the gift. As we come to this imperative, I think it would be very wise for us as New Testament followers of Christ to be cautious in the way we treat other people. This sort of verse should give cessationists pause and encourage us to treat those who disagree with us with grace. This time I'm going to invite, Ian, if you could, advance to the slide I've got there for you. So I just want to take a moment and kind of situate us among other Christians here for a moment. There's a big fancy word up on the board on the blackboard, that is a cessationist position. There's some 
some Christians who look at the text of Scripture, look at 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and everything I proclaimed to you in the last 14 or 15 sermons, and say they, they believe gifts like tongues, prophecy, and knowledge have already ceased. They're cessationists. That's the actual position of our, our church here that's built into our doctrinal statements, and that's what I believe. Okay. However, there's another way of looking at this, and really the two large ways of looking at this would be the second, the second way to look at this uh, would be there are some who are continuationist. I'm glad we have a, a, a wide slide up here, right? Continuationist. What do they believe? Well, they believe that all the gifts of the Spirit continue on to this day. Things like apostleship, tongues, visions, prophecies, miracle working, these sort of things continue. And that doctrinal position is held by today uh, by many different Christians, and there are different ways they hold to this second position. Some extreme charismatics hold to this position and glory in gifts, like tongue speaking, as them being manifestations of spirituality or a second work of the Spirit. Okay, so there's some extreme charismatics who would really glory and boast in these gifts and exalt them and uplift them. Okay. However, there are others who hold the position in more moderate ways. And Ian, if you could advance to the next slide. There is a position that's been made popular initially or recently by uh, John Piper. John Piper. There are not only charismatics who would hold this, there are Baptists who would hold this. John Piper holds an open but cautious view, and it's exactly what it sounds like. These are big, fancy words, but they're actually pretty easy to understand. And so what Piper and others like him would say is, uh, and this is a continuationist position, is that they're going to leave the door open for gifts like tongues to be demonstrated today, but they will insist that if and when it occurs that it would follow the restrictions found in the Bible and the characteristics of true tongue speaking found in the Bible. This position has been recently championed by, Mark, or by Matt Chandler as well, evangelical preacher Matt Chandler, who is himself a Baptist. I've actually heard questions about it this week. Open but cautious. The reason I mention these different polls in the continuationist position is that it is very easy for us to broad brush, to use a broad brush and claim that all of them are the, they all evidence all of the extremes of charismaticism, but this is, this is not true. So I've presented a cessationist view to you the last 14 or 15 weeks on gifts like tongues and uh, that they have already ceased. And I feel very confident in doing that because this text actually gives us indications that tongues, prophecy, and knowledge will pass away. It will cease. However, his command at the end of verse 39, you see the command at the end of verse 39, do not forbid speaking in tongues, should cause us to be gracious, especially with those who leave the door open slightly for people to speak in tongues, but require every manifestation of tongues to fit the biblical mold. If someone 
legitimately requires all the biblical regulations and allows only the biblical pattern of tongue speaking to continue, I could be happy because I don't believe that that sort of tongue speaking has been manifested any time in the last 1700. In other words, what, when Paul writes here, he says, he gives a command, do not forbid tongues. The reason why I would suggest that we don't believe in tongue speaking is because of chapter 13, the passage we already looked at. Tongues will cease. It's temporal. Don't focus on tongues. Focus on other things. Okay, you can advance the slide. So he gives two commands here. He says, earnestly desire to prophesy. Then he says, do not forbid tongues speaking. And then he ends in verse 40 with one last command. He says, but all things should be done decently and in order. Finally, Paul says, all things in worship should be done decently and in order. The word decently means properly. It speaks of following all the standards that he gives throughout chapters 12 through 14. And the word order was a military word that would speak of following a fixed succession of rank and order. So instead of following our own personal whims or drives in worship, we should bring ourselves under control and follow the things that we find in chapters 12 through 14. For you see, the scriptures nowhere teach that worship should be a time of uninhibited freedom or lack of restraint. Instead, we should follow good order, one at a time, for edification, for intelligibility, for peace, because these things reflect the character of God. You know, there are times, I think, uh, when we just don't like order, unless perhaps it's been ingrained into you. But Paul declares that it is quite important in our corporate gatherings for us to be orderly, to do things decently. As a matter of fact, all throughout this section, he requires believers to be silent if their participation prevents other people from being edified. So we must do things properly and orderly in our worship gathering. I want to encourage you as we close here to follow the directions of those who would be leading services here and to participate by singing or listening or speaking when asked and refrain from causing distractions by insisting people see or hear us. As a form of prayer at the end, I would, I would make this statement to God. May the glory of God and the supremacy of Christ energize us as a congregation as it does the Holy Spirit to engage in true and genuine worship together that exalts the Son. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the express privilege that you've given to us to work through 15 hours on 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. I thank you, Lord, for what was at the heart of the Apostle Paul. Worship in the corporate gathering was so important to him. He gave these three guiding values. He wanted their worship to edify. He wanted it to be understandable, and he wanted it to be orderly. And Lord, I pray that you would lead our church to engage you in this way as well. 
Lord, we thank you for these things. We pray that you would give us an even better or, or deeper understanding of truth so that we might serve you appropriately. In Jesus' name, amen.